You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. Welcome back to Terra Informa and our look into the Edmonton River Valley. I'm your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. And I'm Sonic Patel. Last week, we shared a history lesson on the Edmonton River Valley. We heard how the River Valley was a place of trade, spanning thousands of years that continued as European colonialists established forts in the area. The river was the highway of history. We also heard how the River Valley was a place of gathering, as humans, and more than humans, called the River Valley home and took shelter along its banks. But the River Valley could also be a place of danger, experiencing a catastrophic flood that wiped out its early history. Today, we continue these discussions, delving more deeply into the cultural value of our River Valley, the displacement of Indigenous people from it, and how we can live with respect for our natural spaces and each other. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6 the historic and present territory of the Cree, Métis, Dene, Blackfoot, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. This week, we talk about the Indigenous peoples that have occupied the land of Edmonton, and we hope you consider how the people who were here previously lived with the land and think about your own relationship with this space. Before we get into those stories, let's reintroduce our storytellers. My name is Dwayne Donald. I was born and raised here in this place we call Edmonton now. I have a, a lot of different relatives. I come from a family that's a mix of a lot of different people, but uh, I guess the main connection I have is to the, the Amaskwachewanawak, who are the, the Beaver Hills people, and specifically the Papa Chase Band. I've been a high school teacher, and now I work, as a, I work in the Faculty of Education the University of Alberta, and I study curriculum. I want to say, too, that uh, I'm not an elder. Sometimes, uh, you know, people get confused with that kind of stuff. Uh, I think more properly, um, in Cree culture, what we would call an oscapio, which is uh, a helper. So I'm, I'm somebody that tries to help and uh, make connections, I guess, help people connect. Yeah, so my name is Amber Paquette. And uh, recently I have the honor of being named Edmonton's Historian Laureate. And my hope and my main focus is to um, kind of shed more light and uh, bring more knowledge, I guess, around um, Edmonton's historic roots as um, uh, a First Nations uh, Métis uh, homeland. This week, as we explore the cultural and social significance of the River Valley, Duane and Amber help us understand some different ways to look at and interact with the space. Before we explore modern meanings of the River Valley, let's cap off our history lesson. Here's another little story about conflict and nature that literally shaped the River Valley as we know it. After the Second World War, North American cities changed drastically, largely because of the mass adoption of one invention. The private automobile became the dominant form of transportation and cities were built and rebuilt to cater to them. A rapidly growing city like Edmonton faced new transportation demands. Since the flood of 1915, the river valley had remained largely undeveloped. But as Edmonton grew and moving vehicles became a mandate, 
Some people saw the River Valley as a solution to transportation problems. In 1963, the Edmonton Regional Planning Commission released the Metropolitan Edmonton Transportation Study, or METS. This report recommended the development of an inner ring road of highways. The southern side of the highway system was to be placed inside the River Valley because it would reduce costs and route interruptions. This plan was well received by local businesses and development industry. But not everyone was excited to see wide stretches of asphalt through the River Valley. There was substantial opposition and citizen action. This type of conflict was not unique in Edmonton. Across North America, cities became the battleground for fights between concerned citizens and highway projects that threatened their homes, parks, and communities. Edmonton approved the METS plan, first by council and later by plebiscite. Work started on the project, but citizens continued to fight to stop the highway. Protests emphasized the degradation of Mill Creek Ravine and also cited a University of Alberta study claiming the METS plan would bankrupt the city. In the 1970s, after hearing substantial community opposition, city council canceled the METS plan. What's interesting about this conflict is the underlying cultural and feminist tones. The highway protest was led by the middle class and largely championed by women. Citizen concerns related to the loss of recreation and aesthetic spaces and the harm to young people in future generations. At the time, these were considered feminine concerns. This led some people to dismiss the protesters as housewives and homeowners standing against economic development. Yet the protesters were able to succeed, saving the green heart of the city and reminding us all that cities are for people who have a right to fight for the places they care about and the values that matter to them. Economy and conservation often butt heads, and the Mets protest is another example that the River Valley is no stranger to these concerns. And that takes us to modern day. The River Valley is an iconic part of Edmonton, one of our greatest assets and achievements. It has an important cultural and social value to the people that call this place home. We asked Dwayne and Amber to share how they relate to the River Valley and what makes it important to each of them. I would say, you know, when I was a kid with my brothers and I and our posse, we naturally, you know, were attracted to the valley and I have pretty vivid memories of playing around down there and riding our bikes and all those things back in the, I guess it would have been the 70s, the 60s and 70s. But more recently, I would say that uh, I was really uh, provoked about 25 years ago uh, when I was uh, living in southern Alberta in a place called Fort McLeod and uh, getting to know Blackfoot people. And one of the, the people I got to know was uh, a professor emeritus at the University of Lethbridge. His name is uh, Leroy Little Bear. And Leroy is one of these luminaries, somebody who just uh, really has incredible insight on, on complex things. And uh, I, I heard Leroy say one time that you know you have an identity problem when the land doesn't recognize you anymore. And uh, this really, at that point in my life, it really spoke to me what he said. And so I would say ever since that time, I've... Uh, I've been doing what I can uh, to be recognized, you know, as a relative on a, I guess, on a day-to-day -day basis, the place where I've sought 
to be recognized is in the river valley. And I think it's because um, it, it's a way to connect with the place that isn't sort of uh, overshadowed by the urban landscape and all the changes that are done. I mean, it is possible to be in the river valley here in Edmonton and uh, not see any modern buildings if you go to the right places. And so I started to uh, do a lot of walking, do a lot of running in the river valley alongside the river on the trails alongside the river. And as I was doing that, I was piecing together stories and memories and experiences that I had had. And basically the way I understand it now is that I was trying to tell myself a story about who I am and where I come from and what matters to me. And uh, one of the things that came out of that, of course, for me, is that that endeavor, you know, what Leroy Little Bear said about having an ID problem, it's, it's never just a purely human endeavor or experience. And so part of that process for me was coming to connect with my more than human relatives. And uh, as you may have heard in, in Cree, there's a, there's a very important concept that's associated with that. We say, and that's about kinship. So that's about understanding yourself as related. And to me, it's about understanding yourself as enmeshed in a whole bunch of relationships that you depend upon for your survival. And so trying to live your life uh, in honor of those relationships and in acknowledgement of them. And uh, If I've made any progress on trying to understand what Wachkotuan could mean to me today, as somebody trying to live well today, it's been in that river valley. You know, just with my family, my family history, it's a deeply, it's a deeply personal place for me um, to know that, you know, for so long, this has been my home. I, I do think I'm blessed uh, to be able to, to have that. And I would say that growing up, I didn't really feel any kind of connection really to this place until I knew the history of it. Until I started just being brave enough to explore my own background and then brave enough to explore the city's background. Then did I find real relevance to myself. Um, and it was kind of like a discovery. It was a real discovery. And now when I walk through the river valley, you know, cause I love to hike, um, I love to bike and I love to forage for wild foods. I, I know that I'm doing the same thing that, you know, my great grandmother did, her great great grandmother did um, and so on and so forth. We've mentioned a few times that the river valley has and continues to be a place of gathering. Dwayne explains what's special and sacred about the stace, starting with its origins. The other thing that I think it's important for people to realize and understand is that, you know, if you, if you think about this prairie landscape and try to imagine it really not that long ago, but, uh, you know, when, when buffalo were common and uh, the cities as we know them didn't exist, if you think about that prairie landscape in that way, you know, these river valleys uh, were quite important gathering places and um, there were in this region, in this sort of northern prairie region where, where we live, there were four rivers that uh, were understood to be connected. And uh, as you probably know, for many different indigenous people in those traditions, uh, number four has a kind of significance, a spiritual kind of connotation to it. 
And so as I understand it, it's not considered a coincidence that there are four rivers that originate from a very interconnected network of glaciers in the mountains. And uh, they all flow out into this northern prairie region and uh, they're understood as interconnected in that way. It's not considered a coincidence that these four rivers are all connected to the, the treaties that are active in this, this place we call Alberta as well. One chapter of the history of the river valley that we cannot ignore is the conflict that emerged from the arrival of European colonialists and indigenous peoples in the area. As Edmonton grew and required more space, indigenous populations were forced away from the river lots, some of the most desired plots in the area. We asked Duane and Amber about how this conflict emerged out of an initially somewhat cooperative relationship. Maybe one thing I'll add or I'll say is that um, there is a, a term in Cree uh, that specifically refers to the, um, the Métis resistances that went on led by Louis Riel and uh, others uh, that involve affiliated Cree bands. And in the term in Cree, they say, uh, they say and it means uh, when things went wrong. I tend to uh, use that term to refer to the whole era where uh, the relationship between newcomers and indigenous people you know, in this area, but in general, you know, Western Canada went from a, you know, a fairly cooperative and balanced one to much, a much more imbalanced one and, and trying to think about how and where things went wrong, what happened. I think I'll share a story that uh, I think listeners will appreciate that I think exemplifies pretty well. And it happened right in that river valley basically on the north side of the new bridge where the, the Rossdale, the traditional Fort Edmonton Cemetery and, and traditional burial ground is located, that commemorative park that's there. And this story I read about in a book by Brock Silversides that's about Fort Edmonton. It's a very interesting read, but uh, in, in here he shares this insight. And it had to do with um, basically archives of Fort Edmonton. And the way I understand it is early on, right from the time the fort was established in the early 1800s, right up until you know, the 1870s, 1880s, it was someone's job to keep a journal of events and activities that happened in the fort. One of the things that's chronicled in the journals is this desire to grow food. Because if you think about these uh, men, who uh, came out early on and, and built the earliest versions of Fort Edmonton. I was pretty vulnerable out here in this landscape and uh, you know, surrounded by indigenous people who sometimes weren't very friendly. You know, it was, it was a vulnerable time, but as I understand it, their most pressing concern was how to survive the winter, to have enough food to survive winter. And so one thing I know they used to do commonly is they would hire Métis or indigenous folks to supply them with food, fish and meat. Uh, but early on, they, they also took to growing gardens. And so in the journals, these gardens are commented on quite a bit. One of the things that Silverside shares is that uh, it was quite common for the Indians to show up when things were uh, ready to be harvested and to help themselves to the garden. 
this was uh, obviously reported uh, with dismay. So this was a major concern. And so throughout the years, you see uh, the sort of the ebb and flow and the dynamics of this garden and its history. I remember at one point, I think it's in the 1850s, the, the garden of course has expanded now. There's lots more people in the fort and it's a busy, busy place. And the garden is looking really great. And there's lots of food growing, they're quite excited. And so they know that it's about time for the Indians to come to trade, you know, sort of en masse. And so what they do is they get together and they construct a fence, a wooden fence around the garden to keep them out. And, the next entry uh, reports that there was a big bonfire made out of the fence and, and then they helped themselves to the garden. Where I'm going with all of this is that by into the 1870s, it's reported that there's now an armed guard that surrounds the garden. To me, that's, that's the evidence of it became more about the land than about the relationship. You know, I, I think this is where things change quite dramatically when the fur trade starts to wane and you get, you know, into the late 1870s, 1880s, you get more and more people pouring into the area, this idea of free land, right? And so uh, what used to be a, a fairly cooperative and balanced relationship became unbalanced because, of course, Indians were perceived to be in the way of access to the land. This is when most of the conflicts started to arise. And that's the way I understand the history of the River Valley in this area specifically. As, as I've told many people, you know, when, when the Papa Chase Band were initially asked where they wanted their reserve to be, they wanted it to be next to the river, but this was denied. The Papa Chase Reserve, when it was finally surveyed, was about two miles south of the river. And so that riverfront property and all the benefits that you know, came from it, it was denied Indigenous people because they weren't seen to be, I guess, aligned with uh, the narrative of how this country was going to grow. It really begins in about the 1880s. Edmonton's uh, Métis uh, First Nations population is dominant up to about 70 to 80 percent all the way up until about the 1870s. And we kind of see that number um, dwindle nearly to zero by the 1885. And kind of to explain what happens there is to kind of explain what's happening in Western Canada as a whole. So in Western Canada as a whole, we have, you know, the Métis of Red River and, and then later Batoche kind of dispossessed from their Red River, their Red River lands in Manitoba. And especially after 1885 with the execution of Louis Riel um, and the imprisonment of, of people like Big Bear, it was kind of unfortunate, a chain domino reaction kind of across Western Canada from Manitoba. Because again, as we've, as we've talked about, we have this importance of kinship. And now these people who are related across huge distances um, are having obscure colonial boundaries drawn and um, literally right through their farms and homesteads and waterways. And these important boundaries that have created Edmonton are all of a sudden kind of being, you know, unrooted. So Edmonton, um, when the fur trade dwindles, in the 18, 1870s, the Métis and First Nations were very, very adaptable. They had already long implemented agriculture and farming, especially along Edmonton's River Valley. Edmonton is built on Métis River lots specifically, and they uh, used river irrigation farming. That's why their river lots are really long. So it's not like First Nations and Métis were, you know, just living on in teepees and tents, you know, along the River Valley. Like these people had homes and farms and homesteads. 
and were thriving and actually doing very well for themselves. Um, you know, the old Strathcona, uh, the wealthiest man in old Strathcona was, was Laurent Gourneau, of course, who, um, who at any time could write a six-figure check. He is extremely wealthy, of course, and um, that's where Garneau gets its name, Laurent Garneau. And the University of Alberta now sits on his old river lot. But we have, you know, people like Laurent Garneau and these really prominent, wealthy Métis families who leave. And they very much leave because of the transitions and the weird social environment that, that Edmonton kind of becomes. I talked to Duane about recent efforts from the city of Edmonton to name features in the river valley after indigenous terms, like the Tawatina Bridge holding the Valley Line LRT and the River Lot 11 Indigenous Art Park. I mean, I, myself, I think names are important and uh, spend a lot of time studying, I guess, public representations of indigenousness in public places in Canada. It's an interesting thing to consider how, how, how the people, how the the presence is acknowledged or not. But I guess in general, I, um, I think we have a, a really long way to go before we can even begin to talk about reconciliation. I guess what I'll say is if someone thinks that indigenous, the Indigenous Art Park or the naming of a bridge is reconciliation, that they, they really haven't spent enough time uh, thinking about the complexity of, of the challenges we face and uh, the ways in which uh, we tend to pa- pass over difficulty associated with truth, let's say, and we, we tend to rush to reconciliation because to me, I, I think in a psychic way, Canadians tend to connect it to some kind of absolution, that, that there's been an apology and things are better now, we can move on. You know, what I tell my students in my classes is that um, there's something in the way of reconciliation and that's colonial logic and uh, in that sense i view it as a as a cultural problem as a spiritual problem the other thing is that uh, reconciliation talk tends to overlook treaties and treaty teachings as sort of the foundation of anything else we might do and i would say in canadian culture there's still uh a very deep misunderstanding of, of what those treaties were actually about and what uh, what it means to have treaty rights as a Canadian. I guess for me, maybe to answer your question more directly, I would be much more excited about people honoring treaty rights, not just for you know, not not just for human relationships, but for more than human relationships. I would be much more excited about that than I would be about the name of a bridge. Because I, I think that uh, there's much more depth engagement that, that is required if we're really going to make any kind of meaningful progress in understanding how to live here well. And that's fundamentally, that's what the river teaches me every time that I'm beside it, is uh, this idea of how to live well. In Cree, we say, it's like this, this good life. So as we discussed the issues of Indigenous displacement and lack of representation in the River Valley, we wanted to know what we can do better to protect and interact with the River Valley. There's lots I could say about that. Um, One of the things I'll mention right now is that um, many years ago, I was told 
that the most important thing I could do in the work that I do is to connect people with the gifts that exist in the place where they live. Within that teaching, there's this idea that uh, all people in the world were gifted a place to live. With that place to live came many different kinds of gifts that would uh, support the people in living health and being healthy and living good lives. What the elder said was that um, teach people about those gifts so that they see that as part of their own identity. Whoever they are, wherever they come from, they need to understand these gifts as, as connected to them. And if they understand those gifts in that way, they're more likely to want to protect them. That's what unifies us, is what gives us life. Not some abstract idea of nation and nationality that's imported from another place. You know, his point is that we're connected, we're unified by our reliance on the water, on the air, on the sun, on the land, and all those things. And that's, as I understand it, that's a fundamental treaty teaching as well. So it's much more than just a business deal or a contract, which is typically how it's been framed. You know, I, I guess connected to that is, you know, something that's become really important in my work is thinking about the culture or the ideology of, say, the current government in Alberta. I've used the phrase homo economicus, which is this idea that the kind of human being that they're interested in promoting through their policies and practices is a human being who's motivated by the market and understands or thinks, believes, that every important question that could be answered about how to live good life can be answered in response or uh, with reference to the market and all the benefits that accrue from it. And so in trying to think about what the average citizen can do, how he or she can engage in, in this, uh, these issues, one thing that I think about a lot uh, is this idea of the human being. What kind of human being uh, do we have in mind? And what kind of human being do our daily practices, activities, what, what kind of human being is being promoted? What can people do? I think uh, it's a commitment to uh, learn about the gifts that exist in this place where we live. It's a commitment to learn about the ancient wisdom practices that have to do with how to honor those gifts. And it's also about making sense of that in relation to yourself. Right, because uh, this isn't about converting everybody to decree, for example. This is this is about understanding that the place where you live is also sacred. It's also holy. There are other holy places in the world, and this place is has that connotation. And so, wherever you are, wherever you come from, I think it's incumbent on you to honor that sacredness. Throughout history, the River Valley has had many roles from a place of gathering to one of trade and sometimes one of conflict. Despite this, or maybe because of it, the River Valley holds a special place in our hearts. And as treaty members and Edmontonians, we owe it to ourselves and to the people that will eventually take residence in this place, protect and preserve it. We've spent this episode talking about the history of the River Valley, but to end it, let's hear a little bit about its future. People are, they love Edmonton's River Valley. 
they really do and they want to see it taken care of. Um, the environmental protection is there and I feel like the cultural protection is coming and the archaeological protection is coming. That's, that's my kind of my fortuitousness <laughs> or my hope. I'm not too sure. Um, but my hope and um, would be that um, that we do take more steps, um, you know, as 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 Edmontonians to not only care for the health of our of our river valley, but also the heritage of it. And for for all us all of us to enjoy, especially um, so much more meaningful when you can walk around, see a place, know it's you know how many hundreds of years old, and know why it's named that. Right, it gives you relevance and context and meaning to your home. And that's what I'm really hoping to see, what I think is going to start happening. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you again to Dr. Dwayne Donald and Edmonton Historian Laureate Amber Paquette. This has been Elizabeth Dowdell. And Sonic Patel. Terran Forma is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. All our content is created by a team of volunteers. For more information on these and other stories, visit our website, terrainforma.ca or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.